We're in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, so if you take your Bibles and turn there with me. And I've got kind of an interesting question to ask you right off the bat here. How would you feel if next week at church you showed up and instead of pastor or one of us pastors getting into the pulpit to preach, we put a robot up here and a robot preached the sermon? I'm guessing most of you would be kind of like, this is weird, I'm leaving. Well, that's actually what's exactly happened at a Buddhist temple in Japan. I'm not making this up. Here's a picture of the robot. And yes, I am creeped out. In 2019, last year in Kyoto, Japan, the temple spent a million dollars on a robot named Mindar. It is six feet tall, weighs 70 pounds, and has one 25-minute sermon pre-programmed. If you thought we said the same thing over and over again, you ain't seen nothing yet. Many Western critics have compared it to Frankenstein's monster. That's what the news article said. But the temple's chief steward is actually thrilled with the robot. This is what he said, quote, The big difference between a monk and a robot is that we are going to die. It, referring to the robot, can meet a lot of people and store a lot of information over time. It will just keep updating itself and evolving. Now, a robotic priest, a robotic pastor is just weird. It's just weird. But did you catch what the temple steward, this man, said His major motivation for creating a robot priest is because the robot can live longer than a human and can update itself over time. These Buddhists recognize something that is critical for every human being. They recognize that they need someone to represent them to God. Their solution, we would say, is way off the mark. But they recognize that need. And if the priest who represents them doesn't die and always grows with information, well, the better priest they can be. Christian, you don't need a robot. Frankly, you don't need a person to be your priest. That's why the Protestant Reformation happened. You have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, we learn this key truth. Jesus is the believer's superior high priest. I think the whole book is talking about that one truth, that Jesus is our great high priest. Hebrews actually is the only book in the New Testament to call Jesus our high priest, referring to him as our high priest 11 different times. Now, we Westerners don't really think about the role of a high priest very often. It's kind of strange to us, and frankly, our context for priests are probably the Roman Catholic Church because they have priests, not pastors. Well, what is a priest? A priest is someone who represents people to a deity. In the Old Testament, the Jewish system of worship had priests. The priests did many things. The primary responsibility included making sacrifices for the people. On the Day of Atonement, the most holy day of the year for the Jewish people, the high priest would take the blood of a sacrificial offering and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, thus atoning for sins. This happened year after year after year. Today, some of our hymns identify Jesus as our high priest. Pastor Brian picked out, Arise, my soul, arise. That's what we sang this morning. That talks about Jesus as our high priest. But do you realize how Christ's priestly office, his ministry affects you? Why do you have access to God? Why can you come before God at any place and at any time? 
because of Jesus' death. And you remember what happened when Jesus hung on the cross? He said, it's finished. And the veil of the temple rent in two, showing that the way to God was not in a physical location. It was through a Savior, Jesus Christ. Why can you pray at any time? Because your high priest is your intercessor and he ever lives to make intercession for you. How many of you would prefer to travel to Jerusalem once a year to offer an animal to cover your sins? Anyone? I I wouldn't. Well, why can we worship where we do? Because Jesus is our high priest. We can worship anywhere. What about assurance? Are you thankful that you can be assured that your sins are forgiven? I am. It's really good to know and to believe that when I come and wake up every morning or when I go to work or when I talk to my family that my sins are forgiven. I don't have to wonder about that because the blood of Christ atones for sins and he as the high priest, as the high priest, has applied his blood on our account. We don't have to wonder if we've been forgiven by God. Christ's priestly ministry affects us in profound ways that frankly we don't even think about on a daily basis. And here's what I'm driving at. Not thinking about Jesus as our high priest robs us. It robs us of comfort and encouragement that comes through the understanding that Jesus is your high priest. And I think we often have a very surface level knowledge. And and, and I don't think that's intentional. I don't think anyone in here, any believer in here would say, yes, I want a superficial level, a superficial level of knowledge of Jesus as my high priest. No one would say that, but we all have that unintentionally and it affects our attitude toward God. So let's look at Hebrews 2, verses 17 through 18. Because this little passage is the first reference in Hebrews to the fact that Jesus is our high priest. And in verse one of chapter three that Pastor Jacob read a moment ago, there's an invitation, there's a therefore, and the therefore is to consider Jesus. To consider is to think carefully about, to reflect on, to meditate, we would say. The rest of Hebrews is really a meditation, a consideration of Jesus' high priesthood. And I believe these three verses, chapter 2, verses 17, 18, and in the first verse of chapter 3, I believe these three verses give us the main theme of Hebrews, and it's very simple. Jesus is your great high priest, so consider him. Jesus is your great high priest, so consider him. So let's do that. Today, let's meditate. Let's consider Jesus, our great high priest. Because it's not an understatement to say that every single aspect of his priestly ministry affects us and has life-changing applications of us. I hope you'll see that this morning. And while there are additional truths about Jesus as high priest, in fact, I, I came up with six more that we don't have time to cover this morning, there's a lot more than what we're going to look at. Our passage teaches us four truths about Jesus' priesthood. So let's start by reading these two verses. Verse 17, let's reread it. Therefore, in all things, he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Let's first consider Jesus' unique identity. Because all the other points about Jesus' role or office as our high priest builds off this. What qualifies Jesus to be our high priest? Let's ask that question. What qualifies him to fulfill this role? 
Old Testament high priests could represent other people because they were people. So how could Jesus represent men to God? And the first answer in verse 17 is because he is a man made like his earthly brothers. With this little phrase in verse 17, to be made like, the author of Hebrews expresses beautifully the doctrine of the incarnation. The fact that the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead, Jesus the Son, became a part of the creation he formed. He became a human in every way, the text says, or in all things. That means Jesus was completely and entirely human except without sin. There were some heresies that popped up in the early church that talked about Jesus just appeared to be human. Or he was partially human. Or he was only human and not God. These are all incorrect. These are all wrong positions on the person of Jesus. He was human in every way except without sin. This was actually his obligation, verse 17 says. The phrase had to be, if you look at verse 17, in all things he had to be, doesn't really give us the force of this word. It really means that it was essential. It was even necessary. It was non-negotiable that Jesus would become a human. Well, why was this so pressing? Verse 17 continues, for the purpose of Jesus becoming a high priest. He was under obligation, we could say, to become a man so that he could represent people as their high priest. Because here's the, the really simple principle. You can't represent someone if you're not one of them. Being Americans, we have a representative form of government. We understand this. If you elect a state office or you are elected to a state office, you have to reside in the district you represent. Congressmen must be from the state they represent. Even UN representatives, United Nations representatives, must be citizens of the country they represent. There has never been a UN representative that's from a different country representing a different one. You say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Exactly. There's been no one representing the United States of America to the UN that is of German or Russian or South African citizenship. You can only represent the people that you are of. Now, if Jesus was made a man, what does that imply? You're only made something you aren't actually to begin with. And if you're thinking, wait a minute, that implies he wasn't a man to begin with, you'd be exactly right. Because Hebrews chapter 1, if you turn back a page with me, in verse 3 says that Jesus is God, the radiance of the Father's glory. Look at Hebrews 1.3. Let's pull out one phrase. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. Let's break that down for a moment. When it says that Jesus is the brightness or the radiance of God's own glory, that means that Jesus does not reflect God's glory. He possesses it. Jesus is not like the moon in our solar system that reflects the light of the sun. He is the source of light, which means that he radiates the Father's glory, sharing the very nature of God. He is God. The second phrase here describing Jesus' deity is this, the express image of his person. That's what verse 3 says of chapter 1. He is, Jesus is, the exact representation of God. He is the embodiment of God, showing us exactly what the Father is like. John chapter 1 says that anyone who knows the Son knows the Father. 
These truths are what theologians call the hypostatic union. Pastor talks about this from time to time. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is one person with two natures, God and man. And this identity uniquely qualifies Jesus to be a high priest. As a man, he can represent fellow men to God. As God, his ministry has eternal results. It actually works. Because of this, Jesus is the only person qualified to be your high priest. Let that sink in for a moment. That means that if you are trying to approach God with some other mediator, you are failing. Jesus is the only one qualified to bring you near to God. We have to remember this truth because the other three aspects this morning of his priesthood build off of this. So now in verse 17, let's go back to chapter 2. The author lists two reasons why Jesus became a man. We'll get to the second reason in a moment, but here's the first. Jesus was under obligation, as we saw, to become a man, to be a specific kind of priest, a merciful and faithful one. You see, because Jesus shares our humanity, he can be a high priest with gracious character. He can be a high priest with gracious character. And if you're wondering, well, what is Jesus like? What's my high priest like? The adjectives merciful and faithful shout the answer back. As John 1.17 says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says that he acts as our merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. What does that mean? That means that he serves God on our behalf. And there's nothing that we need that he does not do for us before God. How he does that is mercifully and faithfully. Let's take a couple of minutes and dig into these two qualities because they they really do have profound application for us. When it says that Jesus is a merciful high priest, what does it mean? Well, mercy refers to the compassion a person has to meet someone's need. Compassion to meet a need. You would think that all priests should be merciful. But do you realize that the Old Testament never refers or describes any other priest as being merciful? It never says that. In fact, one famous ancient Jewish writer named Philo argued that priests should separate their emotions from their work. They should be as stoic as possible. Why? Well, the Old Testament system was ordained by God and set up according to his explicit commands. The priest couldn't do anything different if he wanted to. He was under obligation to do what God said. Now, the Bible frequently describes God as being merciful, but the priest didn't have a choice. He had to do his job no matter how he felt, no matter who showed up to offer a sacrifice. But that's the difference, because Christ is different. He doesn't just go about his duties in a perfunctory manner. He doesn't just do it because he's supposed to do it. He does it because he's merciful. He exudes mercy. Matthew's gospel especially often notes that Jesus was moved with compassion. His heart melted at the needs of others is the idea. And then he met those needs. So he's seeing needs. He's feeling other people's pain. And he's showing kindness to that person to meet their need. And that's what he does for us. There are so many inventions in our world today that were met because of a mercy a desire for mercy or compassion. 
Someone saw a need and then decided to do something to meet that need. I found kind of an obscure example for this. The circular saw. You've probably never wondered where the circular saw came from, but I'm going to tell you anyway. In 1810, a Shaker woman by the name of Tabitha Babbitt watched two men in her village use a pit saw. Now, a pit saw is one that you dig out a hole and you put the log across the hole and then one guy stands up and pushes down and the other guy helps to to get it loose and pull it back up. Well, she noticed that you're wasting half the motion because you can only go one direction. It's very inefficient. And being a weaver herself, she decided to find or create a saw that was round and attach it to a spinning wheel. She created the circular saw. In a small way, she had some level of compassion toward these men. They were wasting their efforts. She wanted to make their work more efficient. And that mercy led her to invent a device that could help them. Well, let's consider how Jesus is a merciful high priest for a moment. Mercy saturated his whole mission on earth. Mercy brought him to earth in the first place, moved his heart with compassion when he saw sinners in their needs, caused him to die on the cross for you. Because he's merciful, he cares about you. He knows your needs, but he still cares. How incredible is that? Sometimes we're guilty of knowing someone else's need and we don't care. It's because we know that we don't care. Jesus knows perfectly and he still cares. He understands your weaknesses. He listens to your frustrations because he's merciful. Because he's merciful, he'll help you. You never have to wonder if he's going to help. He's not a divine psychologist that lobs advice down from heaven. Hey, try this out. If that doesn't work, come back next week. We'll try something different. No, 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 no. Jesus sends his peace, joy, and comfort to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. He sends his own spirit to you to help. And because he's merciful, he will always treat you with tenderness. You remember what Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because my heart is, what does he say? Gentle and lowly. That's the heart of Christ for sinners. So if you're a sinner, his heart is gentle and lowly toward you if you come to him. Because he's merciful, no amount of shame or guilt, no amount of sinfulness or accumulation of offenses will cause him to change his posture toward you. There's literally nothing you can do to overcome his mercy. If you reject him, you will face his wrath. But if you come to him, he will show mercy. John 6, 37, if you come, he will, quote, by no means cast out. Not in any way, shape, or form will he send you away if you come to him. Here's a quote from an author I've been reading. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. If you're wondering, will Jesus show mercy to me? The answer is just come, and he will. You can be sure that Christ will not shut off the river of mercy to you because of the second quality in Hebrews 2. He is merciful and faithful. He is a faithful high priest. That means he reliably fulfills his role for us. We can depend on him. He is trustworthy. He is loyal. He never fails. He's faithful. In fact, his faithfulness undergirds everything we know and believe about him. Imagine for a moment, if he was merciful, but not always. Imagine if you didn't know what day of the week was mercy day, 
and what day was judgment day? How would that affect your view of him? There would be no way to know when he was going to show mercy, when he was going to dispense this grand mercy. He's always merciful. He's faithful so you can depend on him. At the end of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 8, we read this. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. His faithfulness and his unchanging character bring immense stability to us because he is predictable. We know what to expect when we come to him. And it's not harshness, it's mercy. What scripture reveals about Christ never changes. He will always be merciful no matter what you've done. He will loyally represent you to the Father. He is faithful in his duty. And because he is a man, he knows our struggles intimately. And he still shows mercy. He is still faithful in spite of knowing you better than you know yourself. That's mercy. The third consideration of our high priest focuses on what he does, his selfless service. Let's consider Jesus' selfless service. Because as our high priest, he performs his duties selflessly. He doesn't serve himself. He doesn't serve for his own advantage. He serves us. He serves for us. Well, what does he do? The end of verse 17 has the first answer. He is a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to do what? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is the second reason it was necessary for Jesus to become a man. He mercifully and faithfully makes propitiation for our sins. Now that's a mouthful. To propitiate refers to the satisfying, the quenching of divine wrath by providing a satisfactory payment for sin. Divine wrath has been satisfied because a sacrifice for sin has been found worthy. The word propitiate has a rich background in the Old Testament. On the Day of Atonement, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat according to the law. This appeased God's wrath and made atonement for the sins of the people. Well, Jesus performs the duties of a high priest. When did he do that? When he offered his own blood on the mercy seat. His blood appeased God's wrath eternally. His blood made atonement permanently for the sins of the people. Later on in Hebrews, the author will compare the sacrifices of the Old Testament to Christ's sacrifice. He will say that those sacrifices continued year after year because they could never fully provide an offering for sin. But Christ, when he offered himself, the phrase is, once for all. Once. He has no need, like those high priests, to continually offer sin because he did that when he offered himself on the cross. God's wrath is appeased, period. Our sins are forgiven. You see, on this day in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Old Testament high priest would kill an animal and sprinkle its blood. And here's the difference with Jesus. He fills both roles in this ceremony. He's not only a high priest that brings blood in, he brings himself in. He brings his own blood in, his precious blood, as 1 Peter 1 says. He offers his own blood to the Father as an eternal payment for sin. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26 explains, I've got the verses on the screen for you because it's so important. For Christ 
has not entered the holy places made with hands. He didn't go into a physical temple. But into, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Basically, he's saying, the author's arguing, that if Christ had to offer his own blood over and over again, that means he'd have to die over and over again. He's not doing that. Why? Because now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin, notice the last phrase, by the sacrifice of himself. As high priest, Jesus offers a perfect sacrifice. There's no improvement to offering himself. His sacrifice is eternal. It needs not to be repeated. It's final. He won't be killed again. It's effective. It actually purifies sin. You can be forgiven. Have you? Have you accepted the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from all sin? Have you received the one way into heaven through Jesus Christ? The perfect sacrifice has already been paid. There's no other way there. And if you've received Christ as Savior, which I'm guessing the majority of you today have, how does this affect us? Well, what a wonderful reminder about the permanence of our salvation. Does Christ's blood ever expire? Do the effects of his sacrifice ever go away? Christ's sacrifice never expires. His work never retires. It is always effective. And knowing this, frankly, just gives us such immense comfort. You have a high priest who is representing you to God, who has permanently solved your sin problem, and he's sitting there right now. Sometimes we don't think about the fact that there are eternal spiritual realities taking place as we sit here. You know what Jesus is doing right now? Right now, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. That's real. Why not receive him? For those who embrace him as their representative, Jesus performs a second service. Verse 18 goes on and says that he aids those who are tempted. Look at verse 18. He is able to aid those who are tempted. To aid is to render assistance to someone in need. The New American Standard Bible translates this phrase, he is able to come to the aid of, I love that. Jesus helps the people he represents, but he specifically helps those who are being tempted or tested. Do you feel like you're under attack this week? Are you weary? Jesus says he is able to help those who are being tempted, those who are being tested. Jesus quickly comes to the aid of sufferers. Jesus' ministry doesn't stop with forgiving sins, and if it did, we'd be eternally thankful. But his ministry continues because he continues to help time and time again those who come to him for aid. He doesn't get weary with you. So how quickly do you seek his help? Self-sufficiency is a very subtle sin. We think, I can do this on my own. I can handle this. I'll be okay. I'm self-sufficient. I'm an independent man. I'm an independent woman. Well, remember what Jesus said about apart from Christ, we can do Nothing. 
How often do you depend on him? Is it only when you're under stress? Is it only when you're under duress that you're like, oh, I need to pray again? Self-confidence is another subtle sin. You actually do need Jesus at all times. We actually do. No matter how great we're feeling, no matter what day it is of the week, we need Jesus. Without him, you have no strength and no wisdom and no way forward. With him, you have all the grace that you need. There's so much more to say about Christ's duties as high priest, his sacrifice and his help. But let's turn to the final consideration found in verse 18. Jesus' compassionate attitude. Consider Jesus' compassionate attitude. Very simply, let's ask this question. How does he treat others? He treats us with kindness and with tenderness as we found. But to illustrate this, let's try to drive this home a little bit. To illustrate Jesus' kind attitude, let's imagine what it would be like to offer a sacrifice at the temple in the Old Testament. Okay, I'm going to take some creative liberties. I'm going to say things that aren't necessarily in the text, but I'm just trying to get you to think, trying to get you to think Jewish thoughts this morning, all right? So you and your family, whether you have small kids, old kids, no kids, it doesn't really matter. Picture you and your family. You've traveled four days on foot to Jerusalem from another village. You arrive in the heat of the day in the afternoon, and you manage to secure lodging for a couple nights. You're exhausted. You unpack that night. You purify yourselves. You and your family are able to visit the temple in the morning. Early the next morning, you, if you're the husband, your spouse, if you're a child or a wife, you acquire the lamb that you'll get at the sacrifice. They had them there in Jerusalem. You could go purchase them. They were, they were pre-approved, basically. <laughs> so you would know that your sacrifice would be accepted. You go do that. You work through the hassle. You feel like the merchants gypped you because they always seem to do that. You're kind of frustrated about that. You come back to your house. You get your family together. I'm thinking about me with three small children and just thinking about the chaos of trying to get like to the supermarket, let alone trying to go to church. And I'm thinking of trying to get three kids together to go to the temple. You finally get there, and guess what? You're late. Everyone else is there. You stand in line. Awesome, right? Best friend to a young parent, a line. No iPads these days either, okay? So you stand in line, half an hour, 40 minutes. You're waiting for others ahead of you to finish their sacrifices, but you're trying to have a good attitude because if you, if you get angry, then like that's the whole point of you being there, like to offer a sacrifice for sins. You're trying not to be angry. It's getting hot now. You're starting to sweat. Finally, it's your turn. The priest takes your lamb. And in just four, five minutes, efficiently completes the ceremony. He kills the lamb, pours out the blood, burns the animal on the altar. Your spouse nudges you because they hate the smell of burning lamb. This happens every year. They get nauseous. The priest comes over, finishes the ceremony, talks with you for a couple minutes. He doesn't know who you are. You have no clue who he is. Well, he doesn't know who you are. You know kind of who he is because he's in his late 50s. You recognize some of the older priests around. There are always new, younger ones coming into age. No one recognizes you. Your worship is done. You head back home. If you're our family, you have lunch, put the kids down for naps. You take a nap because you're exhausted. And then it's gathering everything that evening to leave early the next morning, go back home. Another four days. The whole experience takes 10, 11 days. Now, I'm taking some creative liberty there, and it's a pretend scenario. But how easy would it be for this worship to become formal, cold, impersonal, maybe? Knowing human nature and knowing how many sacrifices were offered every day, the odds are pretty high, truthfully. You would have to work really hard as the worshiper to make sure that your worship was meaningful. 
The priests weren't there to help you. They were there to to do what they needed to do. And here's where it comes to Jesus. He doesn't stand there just, all right, let me get you in and out as efficiently as possible. He is there to mercifully and faithfully help and aid those who are suffering. And there are four qualities of Jesus' attitude in verse 18 that prove to us his compassion towards the sinners he represents. First, he is relatable because he has suffered too. For in that, the Bible says, he himself has suffered being tempted. You see, Jesus knows what suffering is because he experienced it personally. He has been, as chapter 4 will say, in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. He knows the feeling of temptation because he faced it. And in fact, he's the only one that's felt the full brunt of temptation because he never gave into it. When we give into temptation, it is that moment that is most powerful to us. We don't actually know how great the temptation is if you don't endure through it. Jesus knows the full power of every temptation. Your high priest is not emotionally distant. He relates to you since he's walked through life's hardships. Also, so in your suffering, you have a fellow sufferer to cling to. We often connect with people who have similar experiences to us. Or we have the same problems or frustrations we have. Jesus relates to every single one of us. Because he has faced the same sufferings. But second, he's accessible. He's able to be reached. Verse 18 says he is able. He is capable of being accessed. Accessed. He's capable of being reached. Let me go with that. Access means we can approach him freely at any time. No time of day is bad for him. There are times of the day that if you call me, it's bad for me. 3 a.m., bad time to talk to me. There's no time, day or night, that is bad for Jesus. He is able. And then he's available. What does he do? He helps. We talked about this word a moment ago. He is available, ready for immediate use. He's available to help, to assist in furnishing as the word emphasizes. What you lack, he is able to provide. No one can help us better than he can, and sometimes we don't believe that. That's why we start scheming in our own way and trying to go down the road of wisdom from below rather than seeking the wisdom that comes from above. But then the last phrase, he is sympathetic, able to help us. Look at the end of verse 18. He is able to aid those who are being tempted. This is the word sympathetic, which means that he actually enters into our suffering with us. He doesn't just empathize, which is trying to feel someone else's emotions. He actually steps into our problems with us. Hebrews 4.15 says, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You see, Jesus is able to feel our burdens and our sufferings because he was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. So when you think of Jesus, don't think of some distant deity content to occupy himself with godlike things out in the universe somewhere. He delights in bringing his people near to God. He delights in showing kindness to hurting souls. He delights in drawing us to himself and bringing us in like a mother with an infant. When we read about a high priest like this, loving and tender and kind and merciful, our sinful hearts quickly discard it. We rationalize this away. And maybe some of you have started to do this even in our, in our time this morning. You're trying to brush aside the beauty of our Savior 
frankly, because our faith isn't simple enough to take him at his word. We look at something like this and we say, that's too good to be true. There's got to be a catch. But with Jesus, there is no catch. Do you believe that Jesus is relatable, accessible, available, and sympathetic? Or do you insist, this can't be true. No one wants to help me like this. No one could help me that much. No one could relate to me. No one could love me the way Jesus wants to love me. I just can't believe that. That's the problem, is we don't have enough faith to take God at his word. So friend, believe him. Believe him. He's saying, this is who I am. Believe him and experience his peace. As author Dane Ortland writes, not only can Jesus alone pull us out of the hole of sin, he alone desires to climb in and bear our burdens. Jesus is able to sympathize. He co-suffers with us. That's our savior. There's so much more to be considered about Jesus' role as our great high priest, but we need to wrap up this morning. Hebrews 10 contains four applications based on Jesus' high priesthood. And I'll leave you with these four application points this morning to consider. First of all, because Jesus is your high priest, draw near to him in faith. That's Hebrews 10, 22. If you've never received Jesus as Savior, the invitation is open. Draw near to him in faith. He's waiting to forgive your sins. He has made the sacrifice for your sins already. He offers eternal forgiveness. If you're a believer, you've already come to him in faith for salvation. Continue to draw near to him with complete confidence because his blood gives us the assurance that when we draw near to God, he will receive us. His blood does cleanse us from all sins. So draw near to him for fellowship, for hope, for help, for comfort. Second, If you choose to not draw near to Christ for salvation, you should know something. Beware of rejecting Christ. You say, well, that's a little harsh. Actually, Hebrews 10, 26 says this. If we sin willfully, so we go on sinning, knowing full well what we're doing. After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. In other words, rejecting Christ leaves you without a sacrifice for sin. And anyone who tries to come to God apart from Christ faces his wrath. As Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Chapter 12, verse 29 reminds us that our God is a consuming fire. Friend, beware. You can reject freely, but there are consequences. How much better is it to receive a merciful Savior who is waiting for you rather than to spurn the one who has sacrificed himself for you and trample on the blood of the only Son of God? Third, Hebrews 10, 23, hold fast to Christ without wavering. In summary, hold on to him and don't let go. Don't let go no matter what life throws at you. Don't let go no matter how tossed and turned you are. Don't let go from Jesus. He's the only hope we have in life or death. And our hope is grounded on the faithfulness of God. You can hope in him and cling to him because he'll never let you go. He will aid us 
So don't look anywhere for help. Look to him for help. Fourth and finally, encourage others to faithfully serve Christ. Because your standing before God is secure, you can then go on to minister to others. These two verses, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, these are the verses that say, don't forget to meet together. Why? To stir one another up to love and good works. That's why we meet together. We don't meet together just to meet together. We meet together to stir one another up to love and good works. And only those who are assured of their standing before God can truly stir up one another to love and good works. It's the only way you can do it. If you're not sure about your standing before God, if you're not walking with Christ, you won't be able to go out and bless others. You can't serve. But if you know that you're loved by Jesus and you know that you're served by Jesus, you can reciprocate those behaviors to others. So, dearly beloved, let us stir, let us stir up one another to love and good works. And as Hebrews 10.25 says, and so much the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Father, when we consider the magnitude of these realities, our hearts tremble because to receive Christ on these terms is simply too good to be true for sinners. And as Peter says, though we don't see him, we love him and we long for him. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would work today. Most of the the individuals in this room have already put their faith in Christ, their high priest. But perhaps there is an aspect of his ministry that they've not considered previously. We pray that your word would minister to their hearts. That they would go this week without the guilt and the shame or the fear that they brought here because they know that Christ sits at your right hand to make intercession for them. Pray that you'd minister to them today. For those, if we have any, that are apart from Christ, may they grapple with these warnings that are very severe. May they beware of rejecting Christ. And instead of fighting and rejecting our Lord, may they receive him and become one of the family. I don't know your heart today, and I don't know how this, this passage has touched your lives, but if you need to talk with someone after, you're welcome to find one of us, Pastor Brian, myself, Pastor Jacob. I encourage every single one of us, believers especially, to meditate, to love Christ, to have our affections stirred by him. Father, thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.